Welcome back to another excellent episode of Digging Up the Past. I am your host, Petrus Katupis, and today's episode is going to be an interesting one. You see, in the world of history and archaeology, the summer months tend to be a little slower. Archaeology takes a break during the hotter months, and the academics tend to go on holiday, you know, vacations. So, This episode is going to be a little different in that I will be covering multiple topics instead of just uh, the one. No, I have not run out of ideas. In fact, I have quite a long list of things to cover, but every now and then it may be a good idea to have one of these kinds of episodes to provide more random content that could feed your interests and curiosities. So, what to talk about? Hmm. First, I want to bring up the latest installment to the Indiana Jones franchise. Many of you have heard it mentioned in other podcasts or read about it in other articles and blog posts. And don't worry, no spoilers are coming from me. I have always had an appreciation and love for the franchise since I was a child in the 1980s. I hate saying the word 19 for the 1900s because of our younger generations. That is what my kids do and their friends. Every time us adults mention something that is not from this millennium, their immediate response is, you mean the 1900s? Yes, I mean the 1900s. When my kids were younger, they would also ask about when things were in black and white and how it was like getting around in a horse and buggy. I'm not that old. I'm only in my 40s. Anyway, I digress. Back to Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which is the name of the latest installment. What is this Dial of Destiny? The trailers and commercials have not made it a secret. It is a reference to the very real Antikythera device, which is believed to have been created by the great Archimedes himself. That is a lot to take in. What is the Antikythera mechanism and who is Archimedes? Let us start with the Antikythera mechanism. In the year 1900, and off the coast of the Greek island Simi, in the Dodecanese located within the Aegean, divers discovered the Antikythera shipwreck, which dates to approximately the 2nd century BCE. On it was this mechanism, which consisted of gears and was built using a technology that seemed a lot more modern than one would have expected. As time progressed and as new discoveries were made, archaeologists have come to learn that this device was not as unique as originally thought. And at the height of this period of what I will call a Hellenistic Renaissance, ancient Greek inventors would invent similar technologies in some cases even harnessing the power of steam. At the source of some of these inventions was believed to have been Archimedes himself, who lived in Syracuse, a Greek colony on the island of Sicily during the 3rd century BCE. Who was Archimedes, though? He was a mathematician, a physicist, an engineer, astronomer, and as already mentioned, an inventor. I'm not entirely sure how and why this connection to Archimedes was made, and for the most part, it is still mostly unconfirmed. But what did this mechanism do? It is considered to be the first known analog computer, 
and it is thought to have been used to predict astronomical positions and eclipses, that is, an ancient astrolabe. While very impressive in its own right, it is far less impressive than what the film is trying to make it out to be. I mean, come on. The Indiana Jones films tend to take a very large step into the realm of the supernatural, while still keeping one foot firmly placed in reality. Either way, it would be foolish to believe that this mechanism was the only one of its kind and that others, similar or the same, did not exist. But going back to the film, if you were to ask me for my opinion on this film, I will say this, again, avoiding spoilers. I believe it is much better than the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls, and personally, I would place it above the very dark Temple of Doom. Of course, Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Last Crusade do come before it, at least in, in my book. Witching Gears. Very recently, my family and I and some very close friends visited the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. They currently have a special and temporary exhibit focused on Pompeii. I was extremely excited to go. Part of that excitement was fueled by the fact that I missed out on a chance to see a similar Pompeii exhibit at the Field Museum in Chicago back in 2005. I cannot recall the, the reason why we did not go, but when it eventually moved on, there was immediate regret. Now, just a bit of a crash course. Pompeii was a very prosperous first century Roman city located south of Rome and close to Naples. It rests at the foot of the very active volcano Vesuvius and in 79 AD, Vesuvius erupted, burying both Pompeii and the nearby Herculaneum in pumice and ash, essentially freezing the cities in time. Pompeii had a long history stretching as far back to the 8th century BCE, and at that time it was within uh, the Greek orbit of influence because, well, Greeks had settled in the Campania region and throughout all of southern Italy, which was referred to as Magna Graecia. Over time, this would change, especially as Rome and Roman influence stretched throughout all of the Italian peninsula. Either way, at the time of its destruction, Pompeii was your traditional Roman city. The exhibit was separated into two galleries. One covers the life, and the other, the death of the city. And even though I say two galleries, the collection itself was not very large. In the first gallery, where you observe the life of the ancient Pompeians, you see things as fancy glassware, makeup containers, handheld mirrors, hairpins, pots, and pans, everything that was used on a daily basis, which makes you realize how not much has changed over the last 2,000 years. But it was the second gallery that really put things into perspective. At least it did for me. Towards the end, they have a room containing the plaster casts of the victims. The real victims who stayed behind despite all of the warning signs coming from the volcano. We're talking about micro-earthquakes and micro-eruptions, rains of ash and more. Many did get out in the early hours and survive, but... Others were not as fortunate. 
as the ash continued to fill the skies, breathing got harder. Oxygen was consumed by this same ash, and more and more people were slowly suffocating. And they were inhaling this same ash, which would start drying them out from the inside again, slowly suffocating them. I cannot imagine those final agonizing moments, knowing that this is how you are going to die. And the plaster casts preserve their final positions. One thing that needs to be understood is that these skeletons are still inside these casts. Pompeii was discovered, or I should say rediscovered, in the 16th century, but serious excavations happened in the 20th century AD. Note that the site is still being dug out today, but as excavators were coming across more bodies, they noticed that it was literally just a skeleton in these open cavities. And that is because everything but the skeletons were decomposed or melted away from this intense heat. To preserve the features and positions of the victims, it was decided to mix a uh, a plaster and pour it into these cavities. And once hardened, archaeologists would dig the, uh, the plaster out. This is what we have today. Anyway, these plaster casings showcase the final moments of these victims. And it was a really sobering experience. When it comes to history or anything that is far removed from our modern era, it really becomes easy to disconnect oneself from the very real lives of these real people of this or any other historical exhibit. Adults, both young and old, young children and teenagers, family pets such as a dog were on display. You could still see the the collar preserved in the cast. Again, it, it just it puts things into perspective. Just think about it. Every time an Egyptologist discovers a mummy in a newly intact tomb, or an archaeologist digs out a parent trying to protect a child as their house collapses on top of them, victims of an earthquake, or anything else, these were real people living real lives. They had the same emotions, thoughts, fears, and concerns we have today, at the root of which was trying to survive. Now that I have depressed everyone listening, I want to move on to a couple more things. The first of which are a a few corrections from past episodes. In episode one, at one point, I accidentally referred to the Minoan linear A and Mycenaean linear B forms of writing as an alphabet. This was a slip on my part because it isn't and shouldn't be considered an alphabet. The form of writing consists of a set of symbols resembling hieroglyphs, which each symbol represents a syllabic sound. For instance, one will phonetically render the syllable ma, another meh, another mi, and then mo and mu. Going down the list, you will also have more symbols rendering da, de, di, do, and do, and so forth. These syllables would be strung together to form written words, but take note that the words themselves would not necessarily have been pronounced the exact way that they were written. Some of the vowel renderings would have likely been dropped in the spoken form. But because of the nature of the uh, written characters, a symbol had to be used to preserve that uh, consonant sound. In episode four, I mispronounce an Italian archaeologist's name, Andre Carandini. 
This is the correct pronunciation, and he is the author of the research and book, Rome, Day One. And in episodes 10 and 14, I state how there is some research leading to scholars um, or leading scholars to believe that the Shekelesh, a tribe of the Sea Peoples, could originate from Anatolia, that is modern-day Turkey. This research is very dated. The theory was originally introduced by French Egyptologist Gaston Maspero in the late 19th century. I did recently bring this up to archaeologist Dr. Eric Klein, and he did immediately remind me that modern academics rarely take the musings of Maspero regarding this topic seriously. In fact, there is a book published by Osprey Publishing titled Sea Peoples of the Bronze Age Mediterranean, circa 1400 BC to 1000 BC, that continues to peddle this outdated theory by Maspero. And I have been trying to reach the two authors to obtain their, their source with uh, little success so far. I think that covers it, as at least from the errors I know. Now, if any of you out there believe that I have made any other errors in, in past episodes, please do not hesitate to reach out and email me. Finally, I want to cover listener questions, or I should say question, as I only have one for the moment. Our listener asks, Petros, why are you so awesome? I'm kidding, of course. The real question is from a listener named Max. Some time ago, he asked, in one episode, you mentioned that there is less known about the Mycenaeans than about the Minoans. I was very surprised to hear that as I thought that we know almost nothing about the Minoans. Maybe you can talk more about who the Minoans were and what we know about them. A great question and one that I can hopefully answer for you, Max. I'm trying to remember which episode this was, and I think it was in episode five. This was something that was brought to my attention while I was having dinner with Dr. Nano Marinatos. If you know anything about Dr. Marinatos, she has invested a large majority of her life and career into Minoan history and archaeology. She is the daughter of Spiridon Marinatos, who discovered the site of Akrotiri on the island of Santorini, what the, the Greeks refer to as Thera. Santorini is its medieval Italian name, and the modern Greeks are attempting to revive its original ancient name. Anyway, her interests were with the Minoans, and mine, the Mycenaeans, only because it was so close to Homer's epic tales. We have deciphered the Mycenaean language, right? It is a very early form of the Greek language, and we can read their linear B inscriptions, right? So why would for an instant doubt that we would not know more about them? Well, the writings we have tell us nothing about them, literally almost nothing. Writing was used only for administrative and mostly cataloging purposes. And almost all of the writing we have dating to the Mycenaean period is from the tail end of the civilization right before the palaces were burned down before the Greek Dark Age, circa 1200 BCE. These fires from the destruction baked the writing, preserving them forever. And this is what we have today. And what do these inscriptions say? They say, so-and-so from this town on this island is stationed here. That other person donated X amount of sheep 
for the temple of the goddess Demeter. None of these writings give us insight into their culture, society, and religion. We do know that they were a very militaristic society based on their art and grave goods. We also know that Homer preserved some Bronze Age themes in his poetic tales, which can only allude to Mycenaean practices. But beyond that, we do not know much more. However, as for the Minoans, we have a wealth of cultural information, a lot of which was adopted by the later Mycenaeans. But more importantly, sites such as Akrotiri, which is still buried in ash, you know, similar to Pompeii, literally froze their daily life and time. Their art at both Thera and at Knossos has preserved so much of their culture, life, and religious practices, the details of which uh, deserve yet another dedicated episode. As for their language, sure, we haven't fully deciphered it, but of the little we do know, it is an ancient Indo-European language, probably closely related to the Luvian spoken on mainland Anatolia. We do not have this level of preservation for the Mycenaeans. So, Max, I hope that answers your question, or at least some of your question. And we have come to an end with another great episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroscatupis.com. Who knows? It may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis, signing off. <laughs>